East and west and south and north, the messengers ride fast, and tower and town and cottage have heard the trumpet's blast. Shame on the false Etruscan who lingers in his home when Porcina of Clusium is on the march for Rome. Let there be hell! This is Evan Barrett, broadcasting live from the Raider Cove, Two Minute Hate podcast. Today we're going to discuss a couple things. I have a few things to get out of the way uh, early. You know, Ian Bremmer wrote this book. He's the head of the Eurasia Group. He's a kind of interesting guy. He has like a working class background and now he's like a Davos man and he's certainly a globalist. Uh... But he is critical of globalism, and us versus them is this sort of, I think, argument for trying to take measures to protect low-skill workers in post-industrial economies, uh, both because it's the right thing to do and to sort of manage the political externalities um, of globalization. And I think... You know, so he's sort of like a globalist who's critical of globalism. And so I know, I think on the right, he's been criticized because people are like, you know, this is fake. Like, he's just a, a elite trying to sort of like hedge. And I think the left had a similar response of, you know, this is a pro-business cheat sheet for pro-business interests. But in any event, you know, the book's interesting, Us Versus Them. Check it out if you want. Uh the reason I bring it up is I think he retweeted, and I actually got to this via Michael Brendan Doherty talking about it on a National Review podcast. He tweeted this picture. It's like pictures side by side of, I think, around the turn of the century, uh, the turn of the 19th century. There's a picture of, like, Western diplomats uh, talking with some Chinese officials after the Boxer Rebellion or sometime around there. And the Western guys are, like, all in their 30s and look sort of sharp and astute. And these uh, Chinese dignitaries are all old white beards. And this photo is contrasted with a photo from the trade summit uh, that just went on between Trump people and Chinese officials. And the Chinese officials are sort of like a bunch of people in their 30s in suits. uh, And all the... Americans um, are, you know, octogenarians, people looking old, uh, not in their prime, gray hair, etc., etc. So it's definitely like, and apparently this picture is big on Chinese Twitter because uh, it's, so it's, it's not like this is a product of, you know, the sort of like self-doubting memes that we have about our own society and economy or whatever, though we do have those. I think this 
sort of came to be a thing uh, or the image was produced by someone Chinese or someone who saw this as a hopeful sign for their relative positioning in the world. Um, we're going to talk about George Shultz a little later, uh, Reagan's Secretary of State, and his sort of like thoughts on China. But I think um, it's interesting to think about uh, our projection of competency onto China. I mean, I think there's something about it that's very technocratic and weird. I mean, first of all, I'll just say I like China and I think I would maybe describe it as an adversary, but chiefly an economic one. And I think China's vision of the world and the United States vision of the world are compatible. The world will almost certainly be better uh, if the two countries continue to work together. And I don't think there's necessarily inherent problems for us in China's rise. And it definitely is better for the Chinese people. And, you know, China's always an important player in in human history, so there's no reason to expect otherwise. Um, there are issues, though, that get obscured by the sort of, like, fanboyness. I mean, I think because of the proximity to North Korea... Uh, but also because the media environment in China is still somewhat successfully controlled. There's a lot of things going on that people don't know about or we know limited things about. Like, there's been a couple very interesting stories about um, the Chinese government in the Xinjiang province, which is in far western China, uh, taking measures to stop Chinese Uyghur Muslims from observing Ramadan. And we don't know exactly what's going on there, but there are millions of Uyghurs who, you know, have reported oppression at the hands of the Chinese state for decades. I know when I was in Shanghai, uh, a Chinese friend told me there was something in the daily newspaper about a bus fire. And, you know, this is interesting because I don't even know if the story I got is true, but it's sort of like layers of propaganda. I was like, oh, what are all these bus fires? And the person said, oh, usually that means like a Uyghur person blew themselves up, but the Chinese state doesn't like reporting acts of terrorism, so they'll just say there was a fire on a bus, which is weird. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to project hyper-competency onto the Chinese state because I don't think they're hyper-competent, but it's interesting that, you know, such a story could have the effect Like, that sort of story makes you wonder if the original policy was when you report bus fires, you're trying to suppress news of terrorism, but then people, then it has the effect of making people think there are a lot of Uyghur terrorist attacks. Maybe you like that externality of the policy and you can just report bus fires that didn't exist or were actually bus fires and the majority of people will assume it's a a Uyghur terrorist attack. So I think there's very bad things happening in Xinjiang. The one thing we definitely know is that the government is incentivizing tens of millions of Han Chinese people to move out there so that the ethnic makeup of the area will change. And this is a pretty uh, tried-and-true tactic of the Chinese government to pacify uh, any region where, you know, minorities at one point made up the majority of the population or even just a politically significant minority. So 
the first problem, or it's not a problem, it's just, you know, you want to be clear-eyed about China. I think, I think there's two crucial things about China that I wouldn't say about uh, a lot of other governments, like Iran or um, North Korea or others. Like, all governments change, but the Chinese government has shown an ability to change rapidly um, to sort of, like, see what's going on either in its own population or the world and reassess. You know, I guess this sort of started with Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms, uh, which that guy, George Shultz, actually had something to do with when he was Secretary of Labor for Nixon before he was Secretary of State for Reagan. Um, but yeah, so not they're capable of change and also their agenda, the way in which they... Uh, want to empower themselves, empower the state, also has benefits for Chinese people and Chinese society. And this is what I think is not true about... Like, I think you could fairly call the Chinese government totalitarian in some sense, but then again, there's over a billion people, there's a shitload of land. The state can't project everywhere. It does have totalitarian policies that I think are sort of gross, you know, whether it's one child or... Uh, just, like, running rivers through everybody's fucking town or whatever. Like, they don't... um, You could, in some sense, call it totalitarian, but totalitarian includes in it uh, a sense that the state is, like, inescapable, and I don't think that's true in China. The state is making an effort to be inescapable and has it have its hands in everything, but the project they're pursuing is so big that I don't know that functionally that's the case. The other thing is, I think the way in which the state functions that does not acknowledge the rights of Chinese people or minorities or whatever is often in pursuit of, a, of something that will have benefits for Chinese people. So in other words, you know, the Chinese may uh, displace everyone in a small town because a dam they're building is going to reroute a river through that town. And they don't give a shit who they move or if people can't find, you know, new work or whatever. Like, none of that matters to them. But the reason they're building a dam is probably for some economic project that will, you know, bring wealth and prosperity to a large number of other Chinese people. Whereas you can look at states like Syria or North Korea or... um, I think Iran, where you can see measures the state takes and they are exclusively parasitic. Like, they punish some individual civilians not to benefit other civilians, but to enrich uh, a very narrow constituency, sometimes maybe even just the state. So, you know, I'm not a person who believes ends always justify the means, but the Chinese state often pursues policies where you could say the ends justify the means. I think these other states that I consider much worse can't even explain how their ends would justify their means because there are no productive ends. You know, China is accomplishing some things and uh, these other countries are not. But back to the picture, the inversion of sort of, you know, the young, uh, with it looking Western diplomats and the old Chinese officials and then now the new version of that. I think that, and Tom Friedman is sort of like the poster child for this, there is 
a very seductive idea out there that the Chinese government is flexible, fast-moving, and technocratically informed in a way that democracies are not because they don't have real political processes. And to be fair, I don't want to overstate the democratic nature of China, but they do have this... I mean, my brother sort of explained it to me and said he thinks it's fairly corrupt and it's, you know, these aren't open contests. But the way, the thing they have in China is they often have local elections for low-level communist officials and then the Communist Party sort of holds its own process for pulling people out of that provincial and local political system that has voting into party leadership, which is non-democratic. And so the idea, the defenders of this will sort of say, like, it's good because you have accountability at the local level. People can theoretically be voted out. But then at the highest ranks of government, you only have people there, one, who are selected by other experts, but two, who have survived, uh, who must have succeeded in governance to some degree to get where they are. So you have sort of like seasoned bureaucrats. Um, you know, and to the extent that you accept bureaucracy as a skill, they're getting, they're getting people who know things and know how to get things done, yada, yada. That's, that's the defense of the system. Um, and there's examples of where you can see the Chinese state, uh, from a certain perspective, being more forward. And it, this has a lot, like the most famous example is that, you know, China is like a crazy polluter uh, and remains so. But in terms of investment and where they're trying to move their economy, they have certainly put a bigger emphasis on getting off of uh, traditional energy sources and investing in uh, renewable energy sources. And I think, you know, they can do this because they don't have politics. They don't have a constituency that denies global warming. They have a party full of educated people I think all of whom, you know, believe global warming is real. And so they have the ability to make a decision and they also control a lot of the media so they can send a message about why they're doing what they're doing that other people can't argue against. And I just say the appeals of this are obvious, right? Especially if you're um, if you're Ian Bremmer or Tom Friedman or if, if you're a person – and I'm not saying they believe this, but there's a lot – like, you know, education is so important to the liberal identity. I think in part because we tell ourselves that if people were sufficiently educated, we'd all have the same ideas about certain things. And, you know, there's areas where that's more true than others. I mean, I, I do think global warming is a thing where – you know, the earth's getting hotter. And if you, I mean, I, I think if you really talk to like some people who insist, I mean, people take all sorts of arguments that the earth is getting hotter, but that, you know, the economic costs of uh, trying to reverse that process aren't worth it or they aren't worth it in the short term. So you can't get elected on it. But maybe that's an issue where if everyone was properly scientifically contextualized, the voting would be different. But, you know, democratic contests take on a dynamic where you'll you'll push somewhere close to half of people to one side of any issue. So I, I don't know what education would 
achieve. It's really more about, I think, taking a democratic process out of it. Um, but in any event, I'm conceding that they have an advantage in that they have this small community of people that can just decide they believe global warming is real and then they can react to it. Um, and I think you see a lot of frustration from, uh, like, the Davos man, Tom Friedman, or whatever, that, like, we have the best universities in the world, we're the richest country in the world, we drive so many things, but we're stuck at step one of so many of these conversations because the political contests pervert the content so we can't come up with solutions and execute them and we just stay fighting at step one while China eats our lunch. And there's also other things that China's doing that I think are maybe even going to give it an even bigger advantage. Like, you know, in the United States, well, like here's here's an interesting test of our system, for example. Like the, China has invested much more heavily as a state in the study of artificial intelligence than the U.S. government has. And that's sort of scary from like a military application side. But it also will be sort of like a contemporary test of, um, you know, markets versus state investment. And I think the argument people make that's true is that once it's clear that something is profitable, the market will take it and perfect it. But the government can be crucial in providing incentive to develop something that could be promising but isn't promising yet. So AI is this thing where, like, we do have companies looking at it in the private uh, in the private market. But it's possible that for real artificial intelligence breakthroughs, you need such an intensive resource investment that only the state could really do it. And if China has a ba- breakthrough on that, and we're way behind. You know, a couple things could happen. One is that the discoveries they make are replicable in a way that gets into our market, you know, openly or illicitly. And then once our companies have it, they do better with it than the Chinese could. The other possibility is that China has some breakthrough and they succeed in keeping it, uh, you know, only in their institutions or whatever. Um, I don't know what the the likelihood on that is, but I just want to say, like. I think that, and you know, I've I've lived in China for a year. I really like China. As I said, there are some impressive things going on, um, but you know, like you, like I, there was some Tom Friedman column about like riding the maglev train, uh, which is like this high speed magnetic train that can go up to I think four hundred kilometers per hour. So it can get you across this huge country of China really fast. And he was sort of saying, like, we're supposed to be the freest country in the world. This country, China, is ostensibly communist. And yet they got around sort of like regulatory barriers to this new technology being utilized to the benefit of the society. And we can't. Like, we don't have high-speed rail almost anywhere. We have a cello, which is like you know, a quarter as as fast as the maglev trains or something. It's like, that's true, but when you ride the maglev train, you know, you're riding by shanty towns, at least if you take the one from central Shanghai to the Shanghai airport. Um, But, you know, we have an inequality problem as well, not, not, um, 
we don't have the same level of poverty uh, that the Chinese do. But putting that aside for a moment, I just think there is uh, there are real downsides to the Chinese system, not just ethically. Like I think some people look at a thing like that and are like, "Oh, like obviously the Chinese system is nimble." and better at solving problems, but, like, it's unethical because people aren't represented and we believe in democracy, uh, so, like, we can't do that, but it's too bad because, like, they're going to own the next century. And look, they may well own the next century. I don't have any, uh, you know, economic growth is, I, I don't know. There's things they could keep doing. I don't I don't have a line on that. But I think, you know, we really have forgotten some historical lessons about why, like, oligarchies or centralized power is dangerous. And part of the story is just that it leads to oppression. And I think that's our big narrative, right? Like, that we hold on to, that the reason we have representation and the reason we have elections is so you can hold people accountable because that's fair, because that's right. But I actually do think... There, there are at least historical arguments. I mean, the way our culture is disseminating information now is very weird and interesting and perhaps troubling. Um, but, like, democracies are diverse breeding grounds for thoughts and ideas. And on a mid- or long-term policy schedule, like, you need your political institutions to be working, you know, so you need... Congress to legislate. But diversity is a, is a way of hedging risk, right? And that's what the Chinese state, I think, can't do. I mean, if you, if you read Nassim Taleb's book, like The Black Swan, uh, about, among other things, um, the financial crisis, part of what the Black Swan event is, is it's that if everybody is smart, and they build an algorithm, and that algorithm tells them all that the way to maximize profit uh, and minimize risk is way X. But eventually, everyone builds the computer and spits out that algorithm, so everybody's investing their money in that same way to maximize profit and minimize risk. So if you have everyone pursuing strategy X, then no matter how, the ri- no matter how small the likelihood of, you know, the risk coming to reality is, you will be catastrophically disrupted when that event happens because everyone has mitigated risk in the same way. So what you need in a healthier marketplace, even if it costs some short-term productivity, is you need all this different money invested in different ways so that if a particular part of the economy collapses, you are not 100% exposed. So just to put that in real terms so it's not confusing, like maybe it is mathematically true that, you know, putting money in housing or some form of real estate is the least risky investment historically over some period of time in post-war America. However, if too much of the economy's uh, money is tied up in housing when there is a housing bubble, which there will be on a long enough timeline, too much of your economy is exposed to that. Um, even if the sort of like analytical, uh, analytical logic that got everyone investing in real estate made sense and had a mathematical basis, whatever, whatever. So 
I think, you know, so you can see that even in a free market society, even in our society, we could get ourselves into a situation where everyone from a certain class, everyone who was supposed to understand money, was thinking the same way, and that got us into a very bad place. And I'm not saying there isn't ideological diversity in China, but what I'm saying is once decisions are made, the resources of the state move in that direction, and they don't have a media or a public that can tell them things aren't working. So, like, I I feel like our system seems so fucked up, but there's ways in which the feedback is good in the long term. Like, if you think about the Affordable Care Act, I I mean, this is really interesting, right? Like, so, I, I don't know if it's good or not. I certainly, in principle, like the idea... Uh, you know, if I was building a state from scratch, I would not want the state to supply health care. But in our country, given how unhealthy people are, uh, given how reliant people are on the state already, and given the state's culpability in those first two things, maybe nationalized health care makes sense. I don't know. That's not the point. The point is, from the moment the ACA passed, there were Republican governors and Republican... Uh, you know, geographic areas planning to fight it or planning to pursue uh, a lesser version of it or planning to implement their own changes that would overrule it. Now, and at the same time, there's like a conservative media environment uh, and also, you know, constituents against the ACA who are primed to see if the policy is, is failing in some way and to highlight that to their fellow citizens and bring that story to light. Now, this isn't always valuable, and it's perfectly possible that, you know, the ACA is a particularly bad example because the advantages of pooling, uh, creating larger insurance pools is that uh, you can subsidize the sickest people by getting a little money from everybody. And so if governors drop out, you know, or, or people try to undermine it, you may think the policy is not working, but in fact, it's not working because you're undermining it. But frankly, you need to write a law that's good enough so that if people very predictably don't want to help it along, it still works. And if it doesn't rise to that standard, don't pass it. But that's a separate point. The, the real point is we have the ability in real time, and this always looks like discord, to be like, okay, this thing passed. Do we want to embrace it? Is it working? What are the stories of people dealing with it? And that means a couple things. It means you can improve it. It means you can tweak it. It means, I mean, in some people's minds, I'm sure this is frustrating because they're like, the ACA is good. I know it's good. It's a step on the way to real nationalized health care. But we have all these conservative and media institutions that are going to undermine it. So maybe we'll never get there. But here's the thing. Maybe that's true about ACA, but it won't be true of every progressive policy or every conservative policy or just every policy you like. So like the fact that people are going to fight it is like an antibody for the system. It forces the thing to be better, to improve, to work for people or it dies. And certainly just like in a human body, your antibodies may attack something it shouldn't attack or may insufficiently attack something it really needs to attack. But you you need antibodies. And I think part of the problem with the Chinese system is that I don't know what those antibodies are. I mean, presumably the antibodies are local politicians and differently-minded politicians within the party 
who will tell the party higher ups how their policies are working. But if you look at sort of like what's gone on, it doesn't seem like the most thoughtful process. I mean, if you look at the one child policy and they did change things, by the way, you know, while that policy was going on, I think it got looser and there were adjustments made. You could pay to have another kid and certain minorities were allowed to have more kids because otherwise, you know, they'd be worried about the survival of of their group in China. But in general, like they did this massive social engineering. It fucked up a lot of people that like that generation of people. They're called like little emperors because they're weird only children. They have like 60 million more men than women. So they can't get those people married. So they're going to have, you know, however they like incel problem manifests in Chinese society. And like I think they're wholly unprepared to help their citizens deal with, like, the psychological and social ramifications of of what they just did to them because they don't have these feedback loops. And you can say, well, maybe they don't care. Like, their people have psychological problems, but the party's program moves on and they just hope they can absorb it. That's probably true, but I think it's also probably true that, you know, fucking with the social order has some economic and political externalities they can't predict and could threaten them. Um, you know, just in a, in a random example would be like their kind of eco- – like they were, they used to be concerned about overpopulation. Now they did this crazy social policy to address that problem. And I do wonder if, uh, you know, how that's going to affect the population outlook going forward and what that means for – the type of robust robust economic growth they've come to expect year in year out. Um, so we'll see. I don't, I don't know. And again, like I'm I'm not trying to call them terrible. I'm just saying that you know the discord we have in our system is often like a stress test for anything we try to do, and it's very frustrating that so few things, even if it seems like every right-minded person you know, feels the same way to get the state to do something about it is very difficult. And then even if it does, there's sort of like a brutal process in which the change that already occurred could be subverted or changed or whatever. And I'm not sure things are working perfectly in our system. I mean, two, two huge problems would be Congress is essentially incentivized not to legislate. And I think that's better than the opposite. I think that's better than, uh, over legislating, but you know, it's it's not like they're not writing laws because they have a principled aversion to government overreach. They're not writing laws because people are so with it politically and sort of like the radical ends of the parties are so mobilized that the costs of doing things has gone up. And also like getting rid of earmarks and transparency about donations and stuff, like there's just a lot more public knowledge about the voting, why it's happening, and how you fight back if you don't like how a member voted. Now, that might also be good in the long term that citizens have those tools. But at the moment, it does seem to be hurting Congress's ability to function. And then I would also say, you know, the media, people being educated about these issues, we're having some problems right now. I mean, I think that the traditional media, which is incredibly value and maybe the incredibly valuable and maybe the most important uh element of a, you know, a non-government institution in a democracy, I think they really did sort of fall asleep on the job. I mean, it is the case that, you know, compared to historical media, our media may still be good and honest or whatever. Um, But unfortunately, like, 
a bunch of public blunders and biases and of doing things a certain way has really broken trust uh, with the consumers. And the disastrous outcome of that, you know, I think some healthy skepticism is good, but the disastrous outcome is that people find voices on the internet they like who they then put trust in, but those people aren't using the same editorial standards that the traditional media are, and the traditional media uses those standards and still manages to misrepresent things a lot of the time, so you can imagine how somebody, how reliable somebody totally, you know, unbuoyed to any ethic or norms of behavior on the internet, uh, you know, how responsibly they disseminate information. So I, I think the information noise issue and the congressional functioning issue are current barriers to our sort of policy antibodies functioning well. But I still think I'd bet on our system because I don't see what the Chinese antibodies are. You know, like, again, in our system, I'm like, well, the media is supposed to help us evaluate this. They're not doing a perfect job right now. Congress helps us write laws to address problems and then can also adjust the laws or, you know, whatever. And they're not really doing that right now. And they're certainly not acting as a check on executive power, which is another one of their uh, responsibilities. But, you know, I think we have the blueprint. It's just not currently functioning. So we need to look at that. Uh, In China, I don't think they have the blueprint. And I think they've gotten a number of things right. But there is going to be a big policy question that they get disastrously wrong uh, because that's just what happens when you have, you know, one community of people who think somewhat alike making big decisions and they will invest in something or get exposed in something that will not work and they will not reverse course quickly uh, because it'll be the type of thing where, you know, their blind spot is their blind spot. The reason they don't see the policy not working is the same reason they all thought it would work in the first place, and they get themselves into trouble. And I think as Americans, we should be voting against this. I mean, my goal is not uh, political or economic disruption in China. I think it is possible. I mean, I don't know if China will ever be a place in in my lifetime that has... uh, the ability to, you know, treat its Uyghur minority in a way that I would consider acceptable. That being said, the state does have the capacity to change and is like a linchpin of the global economy. So I I think it's, we have to hope for reform instead of collapse. Collapse would be disastrous. Uh, And I think it's, it's capable of reform, but I do think so again, I'm, I'm not rooting for China to get some big policy issue wrong. I just think their system is more vulnerable than it appears right now. And we know this from history. I mean, historic democracies, and you know, there aren't that many old democracies. Um, and historical examples of democracy like Greece or whatever are like a little weird and a little different from what we consider democracy now. But I do think it's... There are reasons to believe that democracy is not just a righteous system, but actually better at problem solving than deferring to technocrats, which is what the Chinese do and what it seems like these Davos folks are jealous of. And I think it's an interesting question because 
the one thing you you would throw into this argument that that maybe is what Tom Friedman or Ian Bremmer are thinking about that we don't have in the historical record is that technology is changing the nature uh, of policy problems so quickly that the sort of like slow uh, contemplative ways in which democratic societies adopt new postures in terms of policy is a greater disadvantage than it used to be to, say, China, where you can just educate a certain class of people about, you know, artificial intelligence, satellite technology, and they can just be away moving with what they think is the right thing to do. They don't have to educate the public. So in other words, like, as technology gets more complex and more and more complex technology comes online faster and faster, the cost of educating your public and elected officials uh, will go up. And so if those technologies are at the heart of policy problems, your ability to grapple with them might be inhibited. Whereas in China, if you already select for very educated people within the Communist Party, which I don't even know. I mean, I know at the local level... Uh, there are like regular people who are Chinese party politicians. I tend to think that the people who actually make the party leadership are very educated. Um, But I'm sure there are exceptions to that. But the point is they are more technocratically experienced than uh, the U.S. Congress or whatever. So their capacity to uh, grapple with those technological issues might be better. But I'd, I'd still bet on our system. I mean, you know, I wouldn't like to have to bet on either because <laughs> they both they both seem uh, to have some challenges that I don't have the answer to. But if I had to pick one, uh, I'd still bet on ours. One last thing, and, and I don't know if this will work, but, you know, I like making smaller metaphors and they're limited in their ability to explain complex systems. But and, and I don't want to imply that the Chinese state or the Communist Party is strictly meritocratic. I mean, I think a lot of what getting up in that party uh, requires is like political cunning, not as we think of it as like, you know, running a good campaign, but just sort of like outmaneuvering other people who are trying to get, who are trying to climb the, the Communist Party infrastructure. But if you think about, you know, sort of like a, we have two towns side by side, and in one of the towns, you say, Okay, we're going to take we're going to do some sort of test. And, you know, there's two towns in Texas on either side of a river. And in the town on the eastern side of the river, you say we selected the three people who were one who was very successful in business, one who has a genius level IQ uh, and one who is a uh, very popular community leader. And they are going to make decisions for this town in perpetuity. Now, if people are upset in the town, they may show some capacity to react, but they are not going to have a big consultative decision-making process. They are going to look at the information about any policy issue, and they're going to make a decision. And in the other town, you just have people voting, and, you know, there's a rotating cast of, of leaders. Now, the type of thing I would imagine happening over time is that the town on the eastern bank with its, you know, technocratic leadership might jump out to a lead. Uh, it might, you know, invest money more wisely. It might choose, uh, you know, to set up schools for more relevant skills for its people. Maybe the, 
you know, the, the job environment in that town is better. But, you know, when those people, when those three people make a big mistake or are pot committed to that mistake and start sensing that uh, it's not going well and the population is unhappy, I think it's a difficult question to know uh, what they do then because they know they've screwed this up. But, you know, if you're invested in the idea that you're good at decision making, you're sort of incentivized to to stay the course uh, or at the very least, you may not have the capacity to see what was wrong about your original thinking. Whereas on the western bank of the river, where everyone's voting and participating, there were probably people involved who saw the flaw in the idea from the very beginning. And if those people can be empowered by the process, they may know the answer and can get it going, you know, because they were sort of planning while they were out of power the whole time. So I think it's it's easier to imagine it at that smaller level how that might play out over say 50 years or a few generations and why the democratic town might garner advantage uh as time went along um because also it's it's just more direct right you're you're relying on individuals to be incentivized to express their interest as opposed to a leader intuiting the interest of the people which is a factor but I think it also shows how you can imagine it's like in good times, in times of prosperity, the more efficient political system with the three people making all the decisions is better. But in challenging times, in problematic times, the uh, political system with more diversity uh, will probably have a wider range of, of thoughts and perspectives to draw on. So that's that's my little perspective on that. I meant that to be like a five minute aside, but now we're 40 minutes in. I wanted to talk about the new NFL rule a little bit because um, I know we've we've talked about it before on here. The first thing I want to say is just that I was sort of happy when this news story happened because there's a problem for someone like me who I think is not that conservative that the social moment right now is one in which the speech that's suppressed the most, and I don't mean by the state, I mean like socially or professionally, usually seems to be because it's regressive or hateful or whatever. So when you're defending those people, you can often seem like you're you're only coming to the defense of the expression of a certain identity group or a certain political group, and that's damaging. And I think what the NFL's doing is so important for free speech folks to talk about because it's the opposite, because it's an example of, in my view, progressive speech being suppressed. Um, And there's a couple things to say. The first one is just that I think the NFL is dumb. I think they're misreading the moment. I think they are an incredibly regressive institution. They get almost everything wrong, and it always disadvantages them in the end. I mean, they were so slow on concussion and injury stuff, and I think it cost them viewers. It definitely cost them money in lawsuits. Um, and I think this new policy where they've said, you know, players who kneel will be fined and the team might even get a 15-yard penalty, it seems to me that they're betting that they can flex their muscles and that, you know, they're staring down the players and that they will win just by creating this moderate 
cost. But there's two problems with that. One is that I don't think they had as universal buy-in from ownership as they thought. I mean, already the Jets owner has said if his players kneel uh, and they're fined, he will pay the fines. Um, Though, you know, that's as far as I know, he's the only owner who's made that commitment. But the second thing is... I think they're sort of thinking like, oh, like you guys don't really believe in this. You like to show up like, you know, I follow some of these guys on Twitter, um, especially like the Bennett brothers. Like I've seen them in the news and stuff like there are some really passionate, committed people in the NFL. And I think in a sense, the NFL is giving them an opportunity to prove their commitment. I mean, one criticism I heard in like conservative media is sort of like, oh, these millionaire guys, they have uh, easy lives. This is like the laziest criticism. America has rewarded them and they're just like spitting in the face of veterans. Well, there's a lot of problems with that perspective, but I think some of that criticism has to go away if you know they're risking a fine because now it's, it's a sacrifice. It's not just that they're trying to offend. I mean, I never thought their intent was to offend, and most of them explicitly said that wasn't their intent. But what I'm saying is, it's now obvious, if they were to kneel now, it would be obvious that they cared enough to face a, you know, financial burden placed on themselves, and potentially the social burden of their team or coach being mad that they got a 15-yard penalty. Both those are real sacrifices, so you may deter the majority of kneelers but I think you have also made those who continue to kneel more sympathetic figures because the cost, the fact that they know the cost now means that anyone who does it is committed in a deeper way. Um, and so, you know, I and in that way, I think it's hopeful because I think I think the NFL, because it is always behind the times and because Roger Goodell is never thinks wisely about these things uh, is like they're really betting that by flexing like this they can call the players bluff and I think unfortunately for them I mean it's not unfortunate for me they they have raised the stakes of the confrontation in an attempt to end it and I think they will be proven wrong the the players will join them in raising the stakes and it will become more costly to the league and it's just also strategically stupid i mean you know the nfl and the nba have very different fan bases um and i approve of adam silver you know allowing players or like approving of players expressing themselves but i also think if you were going to be very cynical and strategic you could also just say that like Adam Silver, by approving of of players wearing shirts that say I can't breathe and stuff, he has sort of like brought in the subversive thing and normalized it. So now like you can go to a stadium and maybe during warm ups, a player is wearing an I can't breathe shirt. But from most of the seats in the stands, you can't even see that. And, you know, it's not disruptive in the way that some people say they found the kneeling disruptive. So. Silver by bringing the narrative inside, in some sense he's empowered his players, but in another sense he sort of ended the conversation. Like, here's your... It's almost like, you know, think about it like this. Like, you know, there are G20 protests where the cops get mad and show up and tear gas, and then even if you don't like 
the G20 protesters, you sort of think to yourself, well, like, kids can't go demonstrate against an international trade deal without getting their heads bashed in. Like, it makes someone like me, who's not particularly sympathetic to the message, more sympathetic with the protesters. Whereas, if you do something a little bit more cynical, where you say, like, this is the space where your protests uh, are welcomed, like, we've made these facilities for you, they'll be porta potties uh, there'll be security to make sure things don't get out of control, but, you know, we don't object to this. You're lowering the stakes of the confrontation and I think denying an opportunity for more uh, symbolic victories. So I, th- I think the NFL's fucking that up and that might be good for us just in general because, I, th- I you know, I think for a lot of observers, when you know the, if, when the dudes keep doing it, which I think some of them will, they're, they're going to get some credibility. Not from everybody. You know, obviously there's a huge constituency that just doesn't like it and thinks it's disrespectful and will continue to sort of say, hey, just shut up and play football. But I think there will be people... And I'll, maybe I'll, I should just, rather than predicting, speak for myself. I didn't. I always defended the right of the players to kneel, but I didn't particularly care about what they had to say, particularly Colin Kaepernick, because I didn't think he was a very eloquent communicator about the issues he's passionate about. So for me, it was just like, yeah, they should express themselves, but I'm just sitting here waiting for the game to start. I am now interested and will be impressed if someone kneels uh, and faces the uh, penalties. And I think, I assume I'm not the only one. And I I will feel more, uh, I'll be more interested in listening to the people who face, you know, putting some aspect of their profession at risk to continue delivering the message that they want to deliver. And I want to get into sort of what what this means for free speech in general because I brought this up before but you know Elliot Spitzer and some other like mainstream liberal were on Bill Maher a couple months ago now and they were talking about how one of the uh, Parkland survivors I think it was David Hogg called for a boycott of Laura Ingram's show I believe because she said something disparaging and uh, Bill Maher was sort of saying, like, this is anti-free speech, and Elliot Spitzer and the other liberal were saying, you don't understand free speech. Like, being a consumer is one of the most important ways you can express your free speech, and that's not just by purchasing things, but it's by not purchasing things. And so if you want to influence advertisers or withdraw your material support from something, that not only is that not a f- threat to free speech, that's a way of using your speech And look, that's technically true. And, you know, and I don't think what the NFL is doing violates the First Amendment. But here's what I do think, and I think it's depressing that uh, a sort of down-the-line dem like Elliot Spitzer, who's also a legal professional, wouldn't make this point, is that if you look at American history, uh, we've always had the First Amendment. But there are very different periods of time concerning how free people really felt to express themselves. I mean, it may be the case that in most periods of American history, if you got in some sort of trouble for saying something, you could go to court and win. 
But it is also the case, I think, that in terms of the culture of promoting open exchange of ideas, we have had more and less open periods. And so I'm not really concerned that the legal right guaranteed by the Constitution is under threat. And in fact, people tell me, I don't know this, but like conservative legal people say that uh, the sort of like legal precedent for free speech is as strong now as it's ever been. And like, you know, cases uh, keep getting ruled in favor of the expressor or whatever. So like the legal framework of the First Amendment is very strong. But I think when we think of ourselves as a free country, we do not mean, like when we invoke the First Amendment as a concept, we do not mean like I'm a federal employee and I can tweet something and they can't take my job away because they're the state and the state can't be censorious about speech. I don't think that's what we mean. That's not what I mean. I think we mean that based on the First Amendment being constitutionally protected, we have fostered a culture of openness that was more effective at times than others and more effective in some communities than others. And, you know, just to give examples, like in the early part of the 20th century, try talking publicly about communism and why you think it's good in a variety of non-public contexts, and you would be punished, if not by something as dramatic as getting your job taken away and being blacklisted, which happened to people, just losing friends. Um, And I think that was a social reality that was not necessary to defeat communism. I think it was probably counterproductive. I mean, I think Joe McCarthy probably aided the cause of communism in, in making it appear that its logical opponent was a sort of like you know, totalitarian patriotism. Um, And, you know, if you're black or gay, uh, for most of American history, there are things you couldn't say without great cost. And so in some ways, I feel like towards the end of the 20th century might have been one of the first times and like the early internet that the, the legal concept of free speech was functioning culturally in the way I would want it to, i.e. most people from most communities could express a very wide range of opinions in many contexts and not face profound economic or social consequences. Now, the legal considerations are all the same. Like, Twitter is a private company. It can kick people off if it wants. The NFL has the legal right, uh, I think, to do what it's doing. But what I'm trying to say is for free speech to function in the, in the way we want it to, for our constitutional legal protection to create the environment that we actually like, or at least that I actually like, we need private individuals and institutions to embrace the ethic of the First Amendment. And there's a couple reasons for this. I mean, it's And it is the case historically, I think, that opponents of speech have used these non-public settings to suppress speech. And if you look historically, this is often something that the right used against the left. So you can imagine, like, companies saying, we won't hire you if you know you've been involved with the labor movement, if we know you've been 
uh, vocal about workers' rights. We don't want you working at this factory. Um, you know, people might have said, like, you can't work for my company if you've been vocal about black nationalism. Uh, that's definitely a thing that happened. Um, you can even think of, like, more sort of banal examples of, like, you know, music in the 80s and 90s was starting to explore some social themes, you know, both hip-hop and rock. You know, you could think of rock as sort of starting to go into concepts of, like, alienation and depression and songs about suicide, uh, and hip-hop was talking about urban poverty and violence. And, you know, then there was this explicit lyrics movement and movement to have certain CDs not carried in stores and in my mind that was sort of like a right-wing moralist private sector attempt to suppress speech though at times you know people like Nancy Reagan and Tipper Gore whoever else were involved you know political figures but I think we have to view that as an attempt to suppress speech even if we know it's not illegal I think we can still say it's a threat to free speech because here's the the other thing I want to get at. Like, it's very well and good. You know, one of the things that is sort of scary is, like, Facebook, for example, has argued that, you know, it has the responsibilities that any private company has. And I think some lawmakers in response have said, you're kind of not a company. You're more of a public utility. And so you actually have obligations that are more similar to a state-run enterprise or a public enterprise than a private company. And I think that's troubling because, on the one hand, that sort of, like, enshrines their monopoly conceptually, which I think is dangerous because Facebook should go away and one or hopefully a variety of things could replace it. But I understand the thought because they're saying, like, Facebook is not a product people engage with. It's a communications tool used by the majority of society, and that has different implications. And I think Twitter is similar. So, like, it's it's a little bit weird to think about it as just a private company as opposed to an essential communications tool because increasingly, if these types of things are the main way that people communicate with one another, then the speech considerations are more serious. You know, it's one thing, like, the Internet... Uh, I think is sort of like the most dangerous place for speech right now because there's a lot of like plausible problems like fake news and and hate speech. Like these are real issues, Um, but they've always been real issues. And I think currently these communications platforms are being encouraged and incentivized to edit and curate speech in a way that's very troubling because again, like, the distinction between private and public used to make more sense, right? Like, maybe you're you're at a job at a factory and you can't talk about the workers' revolution sweeping the world while you're on the line at your factory. At least not if the fucking, uh, you know, manager or line, line boss is watching you. But after work, you can go to the pub with your other friends or you can go to the park and you can discuss to your heart's content. But what if the pub is Facebook or Twitter? And look, I don't want it to be. I want the pub to be the pub. I want people to communicate in real life um, 
or whatever. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is the public-private distinction as it relates to speech is only relevant if your engagement with you know private spaces is somewhat narrow and your engagement with public spaces is broad because that means like your expression is sort of uh, open and unpunished in most of your life. And then in like a small work context, you might have to rein it in a little. I think that's not how we work anymore because the modern example is more like you tweet something to communicate something to your friends or put it on Facebook. However, anyone can look it up. Your boss could find it. So unlike revealing you're a socialist or a communist at the bar or in the park, there's now a record um, but the communications tool is the same. Like the environment appears the same to the user. And granted, users need to get smarter about hiding their own tracks, about knowing who's going to be watching you, whatever. Like we're the first generation using these tools. So uh, it makes sense there would be some hiccups. But I guess what I'm saying is you can imagine a person uh, whose main communication with other human beings is online and the internet the forums you can communicate in with exceptions you know there's reddit and there's like chat rooms there are totally open spaces but most of the communications tools that people will use uh, are run by private companies that are taking greater and greater measures to limit the types of acceptable speech you can use on their platform and i think this changes the threat level because it is not the same as saying if you come into my factory this 50 feet you can't say x it's saying if you're on my phone if you're using my uh social communications tool same principle applies i can get rid of the stuff i don't like and i think it's just a it's a, it's a conceptually and legally tricky issue because, of course, these are private companies. We shouldn't think of them as public space in every sense. But if they are the main place where human-to-human communication is taking place, then I think they have bigger obligations. And, you know, it's just not that different from the phone, you know? Like, I think we would all be aghast if... If the, you know, if the leader of Verizon came out and said, you know what, we did a study that during Trump's election, behind the Internet, the second biggest uh, way of moving fake news was over our phone network with people texting each other and calling each other. And look, we can't stop you from believing fake news or sharing it with your friends in your private life, but we can say that you can't do it on our telecommunications network. Now, I think legally, uh, according to like the current situation, Verizon could not successfully make such a legal claim, whereas Facebook could in terms of their right to be, because among other things, the phone call is private. Like there is not, um, the phone company, I I don't know the exact rules about how Verizon can surveil your communications, but they are more limited in identifying what people are talking about on their network than Facebook is in its ability to sort of study your posts, at least at the, 
uh, macro level and, you know, see who's who's doing what. But I don't see why if we allow Facebook and Twitter to make the kind of moves they're making about hate speech or fake news, I don't see why the same principle couldn't apply long term uh, to things more like phone networks um, or even, you know, or a Wi-Fi network or whatever. And so I think getting back to the, the broader point, um, we use private companies as a function of almost all our communication. It's a Tex-Mex, tex eating Tex-Mex. No, whether it's a text message, uh, sending something over Facebook, sending over Twitter. So if the, if the amount of communication that utilizes privately owned communications networks is going through the roof compared to any time in American history, then the way we conceive of you know, free speech in public and private spaces needs to change because it cannot be the situation that most spaces where people communicate are stifling spaces. If that is the case, no law will have been violated. The First Amendment will still be intact, but we will not have free speech uh, as we've come to know it. And so I, I think, and I think even what the NFL is doing is a threat to free speech. And obviously it's not illegal, I'm almost sure. It's not a constitutional violation. I do think what it is, though, is it's a very strange sort of private corporation being like, we have an entertainment product that is as popular in the United States as any, as any product. Our players come from all walks of life. They understand the platform that they have, and they have decided they have an interest in using it for things slightly adjacent to football. And this has always been the case. You know, people want to show fashion. People want to do end zone dances, promote their own brand. People want to gain sort of like a personality. Like it's never, it's never just been about promoting the league. It is a balance between the league paying to get an entertainment product from these talented individuals and the individuals having different approaches to how they might make that work for them in addition to, uh, whatever money they're getting from the league. And I think the fact that the players are sort of implicitly saying in real time, on the fly, you know, you don't, you don't negotiate contracts in real time, but I think you can interpret the kneeling in a sense as them saying there's a new requirement for us offering our talent to the league and, you know, all the money we make the league that comes with that. There's something going on. We have an opinion about it. We have helped build this incredibly robust entertainment product that has a lot of eyeballs on it. And because something outside this little narrow world is changing, we have now decided it's a priority that we be able to address that or express something about that. And I think that that is an embrace of the culture of free speech because it is saying, like, this is America. I don't need to go read the fine print on the 70-page legal document I signed. There's something happening. 
I have a stake in something very popular. I want to introduce another part of my world through this thing I've, I've helped build. And I know I'm using very confused language here because you could, if you were just listening to what I just said uh, and not, and you know, you didn't know what the NFL is, the way I just described it, you might think players are part owners, which they're not, you know, they don't have, they don't have a share in, in team ownership or like league stock. So I understand that in a narrow legal sense, they don't actually have the right to say, you know, I helped build this thing. They, the only legal right they have to say is if I don't like this, I can walk away. But I do think there's a tradition, especially in entertainment, of artists wanting to, artists and athletes, anyone in the public eye, sort of using platforms that they have helped make profitable to deliver something more personal to an audience. And I think that's a culture, that's part of the culture of free speech. And if we, and you know, the message is irrelevant to me at least. And if you suppress it, um, you know, it's a problem. And obviously like there are tricky, there are tricky things here because I think, you know, if there were a white player in the NFL who said, I'm going to pull out a swastika uh, before every game or while they sing the national anthem and I'm going to uh, just like, you know, I have a swastika bandana that I'm going to wear around my head while they play the national anthem because that's representative of my politics. And the owner said, fuck, no, you're not, or I'm going to cut you. Um, I would certainly be less quick to jump to the defense of the player and their ability to, you know, co-opt this platform for the expression of their particular weird message. But I almost think my my lack of defense for that person might just be social. Like, it seems like that would be such a socially destructive thing in this moment that I don't want to defend it. But I do think I'm maybe enough of an extremist that I'd be like, yeah, whatever. Like, he'll probably stop because his co-players hate him, but uh, we don't need to force him from the sidelines. I mean, I don't know. I, I understand that it's probably unrealistic to expect private companies to have absolute tolerance uh, about these things. Um, it's also funny. The NFL's convinced this hurt ratings, and maybe they know more than I do, but... The beginning of the last NFL season sucked. The kneeling was one of the most interesting things going on. Um, but that's besides the point. I think this is a point I've been struggling to express because you get into this cul-de-sac with people where they're just like, that's not a violation. That doesn't violate free speech. You don't understand the law. And it's just a cul-de-sac. And I think, I think everyone understands that. We just also believe that cultural norms and laws inform one another, and the law is only safe when norms are creating a buffer that's even broader than the law. So, like, we have this great law, the First Amendment, that protects speech. You know, the government will never interfere with your speech unless you yell fire in a crowded theater or whatever. And then we also had, perhaps as a byproduct of that law or perhaps just as a tenant of Western culture, we had a 
we had an environment in our society in general that was idea tolerant. And I think the idea is that that cultural norm makes it so that the debates we're having about what's acceptable and what's not never even gets close to violating the law because our cultural norm is so robust in its protection of expression that the actual legal framework is totally safe. And I think, you know, you, you, you believe that the legal framework protects the norm and the norm protects the legal framework. And right now, there are very few examples... Uh, there are very few examples I can think of where I think the law is actually being violated. I think what I'm trying to say is that the norm is being shrunk. And if the norm shrinks to the level where only the law remains, the culture of free speech becomes a thing where really it just is the letter of the law. You can, the state cannot punish you for things that you say. Um, we will be in a much worse place. And at that point, the law will be threatened because once the norm is torn down, then people might start saying, well, is this even right? Like why, you know, why shouldn't the guy, if there's certain speech we know is always negative, why shouldn't the government weigh in on that? So I, I think it's, it's reasonable to think that the cultural norm of open speech is a precondition to the legal reality of, you know, constitutional free speech or whatever. And I think this is what's frustrating when you say you think something's a threat. Like, you know, when James Damore got fired, someone was like, I can't believe people think this is a free speech issue. And I said, well, I do think it's a free speech issue. And the res overwhelming response was, you don't understand the law. Like, Google can have any HR policy that it wants about uh, what is acceptable or, or not any HR policy it wants, but it has the right to say to a worker, your words have made it harder for other people here to be productive, and so you're going to be fired. And again, I have no legal argument against that. I'm just more saying like the proliferation of HR policies that are likely to result in things like the firing of James Damore and sort of social media highlighting these cases and pressuring private institutions to take such steps is a threat to the cultural norm of open speech and that if that trend continues, the law itself will ultimately be threatened. And that's what I'm saying when I say something is a, quote, free speech issue. I mean, maybe I need better language because I'm invoking a legal concept and I don't have a legal argument. But maybe you should just call it a speech issue. You know, I want to protect speech, not just in the context of the First Amendment, but in a variety of contexts. Um, so, yeah, that's the that's the long winded point about that. I mentioned I wanted to talk about George Schultz. I, I didn't have a whole lot to say. He uh, he went on Jamie Weinstein's podcast. Um, he refused to talk about Trump, which was funny. He was asked about. I've heard this before, but he, he brought up again that Jamie asked him, uh, what are your two biggest fears? And he said, well, the first is nuclear weapons. You know, Ronald Reagan and I hated nuclear weapons. We always, you know, sought to get like a greater drawdown uh, by everyone than ultimately happened. And that's a huge problem. And then the second thing he said was climate change. So, you know, this is the Secretary of Labor under Nixon and the Secretary of State under Reagan saying that the second biggest 
threat to the future of the United States is climate change. You can understand why George Shultz is not a regular on uh, Fox News or whatever, but it's interesting because he's this, he's in his 90s, uh, he's served in a bunch of cabinet positions in addition to Secretary of Labor and Secretary of State. He is still very sharp about, you know, like they asked him about North Korea and he had very interesting things to say, but the most interesting thing is he just, you know, he, he put in sort of very brief perspective, like, you know, they talked about a bunch of depressing issues. Schultz gave his perspective and Jamie Weinstein was sort of like, do you, are you an optimist? Cause you know, you're, you have great grandchildren now and you're, you're following all these issues that are so difficult and so potentially dangerous. Like, do you feel good about the future? And he was like, oh, I'm, I'm so jealous of young people, which is a thing Warren Buffett says. And he's also like, yeah, I'm such an optimist. He's like, if you were, you know, like me, you're born in the early 20th century, fought in World War II, he was a Marine. He's like, you know, the problems I've seen in my lifetime that I was sure weren't going to go anywhere good, you know, whether that's race relations or confronting Nazism or, you know, communism, whatever. He's like, you know, all these things looked totally hopeless and then something happened and, you know, nobody saw the real thing coming. So that was, you know, it's an obvious message. Like I have said before that, like, I feel like if I was plopped at any point in history, I would identify some social trend and be like, this is why humanity will not get past this moment. And then it always does. So like, I don't think I'm good at, I think I'm good at identifying problems, but I'm not good at being creative about what the solution might be or contextualizing the scale of the problem compared to historical problems that were overcome. So that was definitely like a good message for me to hear. And I also just think like it it made me think a lot of my bowling league because my roommate and I are in this bowling league with uh, vets from World War II and Vietnam and the league's about half black, half white. I think there's probably four or five guys who are actual veterans and then other folks in the league are their family members. And then there's also just some other people like us that got connected to the league randomly. And there's definitely like a... Uh, I don't want to say that they're all optimistic, but there is a quality of, uh, I'll say like social faith. Like it's not that they're expressing belief in God, but with the older folks in our league, there seems to be, uh, and like there's some grouchiness about contemporary politics, but there's also like a, and and this could just be because they're veterans, but they definitely have like a shared language of, American nationalism. And maybe that's being from their generation. Maybe that's from military service. But it's like they they don't seem to be profoundly questioning the point of the whole thing. They may be annoyed by one political issue or another, but they seem to have like a baseline faith that things will, that like, you know, the course will be righted that I think very few young people have, at least that I encounter, the irony, of course, being that, you know, these many of these people fought in wars and saw more terrible things than we have or hopefully will see. So there's something interesting going on there. But that's, you know, 
try to find some voices like that in your life and, and interact with them to to make sure that that's, that's an input you're getting as well. 